This is Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George, broadcasting on CFUR 88.7, and I'm your host, Stuart Parker. Good morning. It's Monday, May 18th. You are listening to CFUR 88.7. I'm Stuart Parker, host of Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George. Over the past year since I began broadcasting here in PG, uh, we've had a number of guests on the program, but no guest has returned more times than our entertainment columnist, Sean Frakoviak. Uh, today, because we were a little busy over the weekend, uh, we don't have a pile of new material for you. But instead, what we do have are Sean's interviews, the best of Sean Frakoviak and the best of our entertainment recommendations. Uh, those of us who are uh, enjoying the lockdown with a good deal of streaming TV, Sean was way ahead of us. He has some superb advice about how to make the best use of uh, the entertainment available to in your home, as well as a review of the final Star Wars movie. Uh, So you'll be listening to excerpts from Sean's very best advice and very best observations uh, this Monday. And we'll return with our regular current affairs programming on Monday, May the 25th. So, uh, let me take you into Sean's first interview with the program, uh, where he described why it is that he has become an expert on the streaming TV catalog. So, stay tuned, and uh, here's Sean from last fall. Uh, Let me begin by um, welcoming Sean. We have him on the line from somewhere outside of Austin, Texas. Morning, Sean. Hello, Stuart. So, um... I, uh, I, I want to, um, I want to begin by, uh, by asking, so, how is it that, um, you, um, found yourself in this situation where you were, um, where you're on a farm way outside of Austin, um, largely, um, stranded while the government adjudicates various things about you. As the, I know you're in the inventor of the too big to fail diet, but I understand that that's unrelated to the current predicament. It is totally unrelated to the current predicament. Um, I don't know how long you want me to make the story, but, uh, back in around 2010, uh, my health started to noticeably decline. I, I was living out on a farm um, east of Austin, Texas, about an hour from the city, um, for various economic reasons. Uh, my wife had a horse, <laughs> so uh, factoring in the cost of boarding a horse in the city versus living out in the country where there's space for it, uh, it made more economic sense for me to simply commute into town. Um, well, <laughs> as my health started to decline, it became more and more difficult for me to commute into town. Um, I had what turned out to be a degenerative connective tissue disorder, um, which has various symptoms, but it is very painful, uh, made it difficult for me to be available for long days of work. Um, which I simply struggled through for many years. But as, as the symptoms progressed, it became more and more difficult for me to make commute, um, which I handled for a number of years but, and eventually transitioned to working from home. Uh, but then after a couple of years of, of grace, once again, my symptoms became too difficult to be available for eight hours of working on the phone a day. And... Eventually, that's my symptoms progressed to the point to where, excuse me, to where my employer no longer wanted to employ me. I, I wasn't able to to meet their terms of employment for a, a steady forty-hour work week. Um, but the um, the U.S. government and the state of Texas do not believe you're disabled, right? 
Well, the state of Texas does. I, I, oh, do, my receive, I do receive food assistance from the state of Texas. And the state of Texas has recognized them disabled, so they don't expect me to be on the hunt for work. Most, most people in the United States would not receive even food assistance if they were impoverished, unless they could somehow prove they, they shouldn't be out there hustling for work. Um, so I've proved to the satisfaction of the state of Texas that there's no point in, in asking me to go hustle for work. I can't work anyway. The, the federal government is an entirely different case. Um, and, and I was actually screwed over in a two-stage process. Uh, the first stage was the long-term disability insurance that I paid for through my employer. Um, long-term disability is a supplemental insurance. I don't know if it's the same in Canada. It's often offered as an employer-funded benefit that you can pay a little bit into in the United States. Um uh, my thinking all along was that if I became unemployed, if I became disabled to the point of where I couldn't work at all, long-term disability insurance would help me out. As it turns out, <laughs> a few years back, um, regulation of long-term disability insurance was moved from the states. Um, each state in the U.S. has an insurance board that regulates insurers and how they behave in the state, and if they aren't paying claims, for example the state will prohibit them from continuing to provide insurance in the state, um, which works fairly reasonably well. Well, as a reform, they moved enforcement of long-term disability regulations to the federal government. However, at the same time, they did not fund any regulation (laughs) authority at the federal level. Um, So there's essentially no one enforcing the rules for long-term disability in the United States. Um, so when I filed my claim for long-term disability, thinking I wasn't going to need to bother with the, the health gate that is Social Security, I, I could simply collect on the long-term disability I had paid into for decades, um, I discovered that they were not interested in paying. <laughs> and I had no real prospect of forcing them to pay, so I had to accept a very small, and by small I mean maybe what, 10% of what I was owed um, in one small lump sum. Um, and that's just what I was owed for a couple-year period. There was no prospect whatsoever of me receiving the full 20 years of coverage I was I was owed. Um, and then they, I had to accept that settlement and basically go away, which thrust me into the process of applying for Social Security, which is a Kafkaesque nightmare in the United States. So, uh, and that process goes on after several years. There's a series of appeals, and on it goes. It, I have been denied once, and which was a process that took over two years. Um, that's two years for receiving no assistance at all. There's no, we'll, we'll offer you a little bit of help while we wait to sort this out. That, that doesn't happen in the United States at all. So two years of waiting, um, I, my lawyer was not the best because there isn't really any, it's a, it's a process that's utterly impossible to handle without a lawyer. Um, even the federal government urges you that you're going to need a lawyer because no normal good intentioned party can address the process without legal representation. Um, my lawyer's strategy was perhaps not the best. I was denied. Um and which threw me right back into the process. When you're denied, there isn't a, an expeditious appeals process. You are simply, well, let me correct that. There is an appeals process by which you can wait roughly 18 to 24 months to have an appeal heard. There's one court in the entire country of the United States, I think it's in Virginia, that handles those appeals. And all they will rule on is whether or not your judge made an actual procedural mistake in your trial. Um, if they did not make a mistake in your hearing, then your appeal will be rejected. So the system urges you not to do that because if you do undergo that appeal process and your appeal is rejected, and I believe like 80 or 90% of them are rejected, the, t- the clock will have run out for your eligibility to, to actually appeal uh, 
apply a second time for Social Security. So by appealing the first rejection, you will run out the clock and prevent yourself from from applying a second time. So, so that's that's where you are now. You're partway through the second application. I'm partway through the second application. Um, it could be anywhere from another 12 to 18 months before I even get uh, a date assigned for my hearing. And who knows when that hearing will be. It could be another two years. So this really, so you're really living a, a Franz Kafka-esque existence. This is um, pretty much... Um, all Kafka could have envisaged for um, developing a connective tissue disease uh, and trying to uh, trying to survive. Now, obviously, there are some creative survival strategies in all this, but um, I was struck on um, on Facebook um, uh, when you know we're corresponding about um, horrific, uh, not horrific in terms of terrible, but just terribly bad films and you um you put up a trailer for the film ramekin how the heck did you find this thing well the thing is um as you use any of the various streaming video services um they all have an algorithm you train the algorithm to to, okay i can't can you hear me not coming through here. Okay. Uh, sorry, carry on, Sean. Okay, I'm still coming there through? Yeah, I'm sorry, we got you now. Okay, perfect. So, uh, as you use the various streaming video services, you train their algorithm to offer you more videos um, that they think will appeal to you. Now, the joyous thing about these algorithms is they're often terribly broken, and the, the companies want them to suggest as much of their content as they think could feasibly appeal to you. So once I've watched a few great horror movies like, say, Hereditary, uh, which is available, I believe, on the Amazon Prime um, Amazon Prime service right now, it'll start offering you any horror movie at all, hoping that maybe you're going to watch some of this content that they've thrown on there from various... In the case of Amazon Prime, they will snap up pretty much any low-budget, independent, perhaps no-budget movie project that can at least put together a thumbnail image that looks like there's a real movie behind it. And they'll throw that up on their service and include it as part of their thousands of movies that are available to watch. And Ramekin is a fine example of that genre. It is a movie, and I, I don't want to offend the creator if they, they happen to be listening. It, <laughs> it, it's a creative idea at the very least. Um, what I assume is the creator's girlfriend plays the the, the, the main character, the character that's on screen for, I'd say, 100% of the movie, um, who moves into her grandmother's apartment after her grandmother's death. Uh, I believe this is set in New York, so the, the apartment is a great prize, and realizes that there's a haunted ramekin. <laughs> and by now ramekin, is... I mean an unassuming, simple ceramic dish that, that she found in this apartment, and it, the ramekin ends up running her life. And it's utterly ridiculous. Um, the movie involves a great many scenes of this poor actress clutching a ramekin to her head, making spooky voices. It's just an utterly ridiculous excuse for a movie. But you know, if you're stranded out in the in the wilderness of rural Texas with uh, no ability to drive and no, no funds to go do anything else, videos like this are a, a, a great boon. That, that'll lead up two hours of your life. It'll leave you laughing, and uh, there you go. <laughs> so, would you say that Ramekin is the, um, have we actually hit the bottom of the barrel with Ramekin? Are there things of comparable awfulness that uh, that people can get from Amazon Prime? Oh, there are things that are much, much worse. <laughs> <laughs> Ramekin, as... at the very least, this, uh, this actress, I think, was a theater major. She looked like she had perhaps starred in some Tennessee Williams production or two and in her high school days, she, she understood the concept of acting. Uh, 
there, there are many movies floating around on Amazon Prime where you where you look and the thumbnail image for the movie just looks like some badly photoshopped image that someone threw together on their home computer. None of the names involved are recognizable. There's misspellings in the description of the movie. Um, and you, you click on one of those, and it's just a horrendous, perhaps a bunch of people with minor dis- mental disabilities of their own got together with some sort of digital recording equipment and ran around their backyard screaming for a few hours. There are plenty of those. I I had no idea that Jeff Bezos uh, had this kind of resource for us in terms of um, this uh, this this trove of stuff. So, what what could Amazon's motivation possibly be for acquiring all of this? Well, they initially in the comp- there's a there's a fierce competition going on right now for streaming video customers between Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime, and very soon the Disney similar service is coming into, into being. I think in just another week or two now, it's going to be a, a monolithic presence in that, in that competition, I imagine, given their library of content. Amazon didn't start out with a library of content that in any way matched Netflix. And although now they are producing content that matches Netflix in quality, um, there are certain shows on Amazon Prime, originals like uh, Man in High Castle is very good. Uh, the Boys is very good. There are various other independent productions by Amazon Prime. They're just as good as something you see in a theater or, or on Netflix as a Netflix creation. Initially, they had to build a catalog that matched Netflix's in volume. <laughs> and I, 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 my sense is acquiring some of these backward hillbilly productions was probably rather cheap for them. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I wouldn't even know where to go to buy that, but then I'm not Jeff Bezos. So uh, it... Um, so this, uh, so it sounds like if really you want to get into the absurd, the grotesque, the utterly bizarre, Amazon completely outcompetes these other services. If you're looking for just grotesqueries, I, I think Amazon is your place to go. There are, I will, however, put a little asterisk on that. There are several services that. Amazon Prime is a subscription service, obviously. You have to have Amazon Prime to use it. Um, Amazon Prime is the only subscription service out there right now, and I'll actually give the evil empire of Jeff Bezos a minor shout-out in this case, um, although there's an entirely self-interested reason behind it. Um, this is the, Amazon Prime is the only service in the U.S. that will give you a discount if you're on public assistance. Uh-huh. So, my Amazon Prime service is discounted all the way down to five dollars, five five ninety nine or something a month, versus the normal. I think it's twelve or fifteen dollars that Amazon Prime service runs you if you just have a normal subscription. Because I receive food stamps, so there's well, actually so a process get to get straight. cheaper Amazon Prime. So, Jeff Bezos recognizes your disability, but the United States social security system doesn't. And that this is, in fact, why we are where we are, that somehow the um, faceless uh, male giant and um, uh, provider of mail order lentils and bad videos um, has you've managed to touch their conscience, but uh, not that of the U.S. federal government. So I think we're going to go to... their conscience. Yes. Okay, so we're going to go to break uh, back in two minutes. On the line with uh, Sean Frakoviak from Texas, we've hit upon the Kafkaesque nature of uh, trying to get, uh, trying to survive being disabled in the U.S., some of the uh, strangeness of um, the Amazon Prime catalog that perhaps uh, people should just glance at. Um, of course, they're just to continue switching topics in an insane manner. Um, the biggest news of the U.S. presidential uh, race uh, th- 
this week, uh, came out of Texas over the weekend. Um, I understand we've lost Beto O'Rourke. What, uh, what's going on there? The people of Texas seem to love him, and then not so much. Are you asking me what happened yeah. with Beto? Yeah, um, <laughs> like... The, uh, I mean, there was all this sort of Beto O'Rourke mania, right? When he ran against Ted Cruz and Willie Nelson showed up and hugged him. And um, now he's vanished from U.S. presidential politics. Who was that guy? What happened to him? Well, Beto was a, lo- was a local Texas phenomenon. I, I don't know who convinced him. Um, perhaps it was just the fact that the fact that he was running a close race against Ted Cruz became a national story. Um, which I think overlooks the fact that Ted Cruz is perhaps the least liked politician in the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> At this point, I think Trump has probably outdistanced him, but, but Ted Cruz is a loathsome human being. Um, I think even Ted Cruz recognizes that Ted Cruz is a, a loathsome human being. So, so, so Beto running an almost successful campaign against him was notable, but certainly no sign that he should run for a national position. Um, I, I don't think Beto ever had the national standing that would would really suggest him as a, a presidential candidate. Um, he would have been better served by running for the other um, Texas Senate position that's open this time around, John Cornyn's position. And who knows? He, he might actually run for that now that he's given up on, on president. Yes, I I read the the Guardian's review of his campaign when he dropped out, and the the quote I found most notable was, um, if you're going to run for president, it should probably be about something. And uh, (laughs) Yeah, I read that as well. What, what was was he what was he known for other than running against Ted Cruz? Like was there anything? Well, he wasn't a very I mean, I didn't know a lot about the fellow before he ran for Ted Cruz. I, I was I was amused and, and heartened by the fact that someone was running against Ted Cruz and, and hoped that he would win. I, I, I have a Beto t-shirt sitting in my drawer from that run. Um, but, but yeah, he wasn't, a, he wasn't a hugely famous guy before that run. Um, his, the fact that he was going to every county in Texas to... The campaign was um, a nice thing to see. He, he was actually doing the legwork of trying to trying to, to, to win his campaign. Um, he was he's a personal guy. You, you could find videos of him skateboarding with various youth on his stops. Um, he was in a punk band. Everyone likes guys that were in a punk band. Um, that that's a a reasonable credit that you're accusing. A reasonable sign that you were a human being when you were in your twenties. That's true. Although we, um, I mean, in Canada here, with the guy who came um, second in the race to become the leader of the NDP, Charlie Angus, the uh, member of Parliament for Northern Ontario, he, um, he, I would argue, although he wasn't a punk band in his twenties, and he did use this as a credential when he ran. Um, he was in a church punk band uh, and tried to sort of introduce this church punk subgenre that many of my punk friends feel did lasting damage to our national culture. So you're saying he wasn't in a punk band? That's a better way of saying it. Okay, on that note, uh, I'm going to let you go and uh, get back to reviewing films for us and um, hopefully have you on in the new year. Excellent. Have a good day, Stuart. All right. Bye, Sean. Okay. Well, that was Sean Frakowiak. Um, uh, he used to have a show like this uh, for the University of Oregon. So the abrupt topic changes um, were something that uh, I enjoyed about uh, getting to do this sort of thing. I'm going to... I was complaining about Charlie Angus, and I thought this might be the time to insert into the show my... Um, my explanation for um, uh, why the show is once again different than I said it would be last week. It appears that it's not just the New Democratic Party of British Columbia that will not allow its uh, representatives on my show. 
Um, the Manitoba NDP had agreed on three separate occasions to put a couple of its members of the legislature who won back ridings in the north like Prince George. I thought that would be interesting. Anyway, uh, they've bowed out again, as has, for I think the third or fourth time, as has Ravi Kalon, the um, uh, local parliamentary secretary for forests for BC. He's not willing to come on this show either. So um, I just want to say, New Democrats, if you stop doing media with people who've quit your party, um, as your number of members declines, so will your level of media coverage. It's pretty, it's pretty petty to decide that um, you won't come to a forest-dependent riding as the parliamentary secretary to the Minister of Forests to talk about forestry. It's pretty petty to refuse to come to a northern riding like your own and talk about how you made yourself relevant to northerners. This is not a good direction. It's an echo chamber direction. And uh, I'm always happy to have people on my show who disagree with me and... uh, I think we can have a fair hearing. So, uh, New Democrats, do consider rethinking this. You seem a little cowardly and a little petty to not come to a riding with a major mill and talk about that mill. Uh, All right, on that note, we're going to go to break. uh, And when we come back, we're going to have Art Vandenberg, the um, multi-talented tech entrepreneur and former city councillor, talk to us about the electric vehicle revolution. Well, that was our first interview with Sean Frakowiak last November 4th. Uh, And uh, people were pleased enough with the quality of his advice that uh, very soon after uh, we invited him back to review the new Star Wars movie when it came out in theaters uh, in December. So um, continue staying tuned. This is still CFUR 88.7. I'm still Stuart Parker, and this is still my show, Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George, the first all-rerun episode. Well, we're uh, we're back with another returning guest to the program. We had Sean Frakowiak on a few weeks ago, talking about uh, the Amazon Prime catalog, and uh, he's uh, back. Uh, perhaps talk about that. But initially, we're actually going to do something useful for you on this show. Uh, that is in no way provided through Los Altos Institute. Instead, we're going to give you a uh, review of uh, the most popular film of the uh, Festivus season, uh, The Last of the Star Wars movies. And uh, Sean, uh, you've taken it in. Um, What were your feelings about uh, this conclusion of the Star Wars saga? Well, it definitely ends it. Um, I don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it. Um, it's a pretty two hours sitting in front of a, a large movie screen watching um, people in fanciful costumes jumping from one sci-fi piece of terrain onto another piece of science fiction piece of terrain. Um you get to see pretty much every character you've ever liked in a Star Wars movie. They all pop their head in at some point. Um, that's the positive things you can say about it. it. It's very pretty to look at. It does wrap up the plot points in some sort of quasi-coherent package. Um, if you were a fan of Force Awakens, if you liked what Force Awakens presented to you in terms of um, fan service, really, uh, in terms of presenting previous scenes and uh, plot lines you had seen in the Star Wars movie and you were interested in seeing those presented again with perhaps better CGI, um, 
Force Awakens was the movie for you, and you'll also be quite happy with The Rise of Skywalker. So, uh, uh, I mean, I've heard things damned with faint praise before. Uh, that was some uh, fairly solid damning with faint praise. Um, uh, why might, uh, why might, I mean, obviously, like, some people were, I mean, I was one of the people who was disappointed with how Game of Thrones wrapped up in that disastrous final season. I first read Game of Thrones, the original book, in 1997, so... At a certain point, I was eager to get it over with. Like, 22 years is a long time to follow something. Here, it's 42 years. This is the culmination of 42 years of movies, uh, nine core movies, and then a bunch of these additional Disney movies, Splinter of the Mind's Eye, all those books. After more than four decades of developing Star Wars, why might you feel a letdown if you go to this thing? Well, if you're taking it purely on its own merits, um, if you're not trying to project something onto Star Wars that perhaps never was there, um, if you're just looking at it as a man, George Lucas, trying to recreate some of the magic of serials like Flash Gordon that he watched as a child, old Western serials, then, sure, Star Wars, Rise of Skywalker does that. There's plenty of leaping around and cliffhangers and one-liners, and it, it does that. The problem is that with the previous installment of this franchise, um, The Last Jedi, you had a more... Um, daring filmmaker in Ryan Johnson, a guy who makes... Um, what I like to call good movies. <laughs> Brick being an example of a great movie that Ryan Johnson did. And oh, he actually that that that, he, that, 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 that sort of hard-boiled mystery high school thing? Um, exactly. Oh, that, that was, was tremendous. Johnson. Yeah. So Ryan Johnson was given the opportunity to do a Star Wars movie with the last one. And what he did was he added in a different sort of threat, um... The they weren't trying to defeat some giant planet-destroying base. There's actually some other thing that our heroes were trying to deal with. Um, not all of the characters were perfect. Heroes that we'd grown accustomed to being purely white hat heroic had some gray areas in The Last Jedi. The heroes' plans didn't always work out for the best. Sometimes they had a bad idea and it, it ended up failing horribly. Um, Basically, he threw a lot of curveballs in terms of a Star Wars movie. He made a good movie with some interesting ideas and some some challenging moments for someone who had just been a Star Wars fan for 40 years and is expecting Luke Skywalker to always be have perfect morality, for example. Um, and people and a lot of the fans hated it, hated it. Hated it to the extent that they tried to, they successfully bombed the reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. Had online online campaigns asking Disney to reshoot the movie with a different director. Uh, they they forced a couple of the the stars um, of the Last Jedi, particularly the female stars or stars of color, off of Twitter and other social media with the with the sheer volume and virulence of their hatred. So, um, in a sense, you're, you're suggesting that this movie is actually capitulating to those people, giving them what they want, and you've suggested they retconned a bunch of The Last Jedi out of the chronology, effectively, they with this did film. Indeed. They, they, they backtracked a lot of what happened in The Last Jedi. There were nods all through Rise of Skywalker where they brought up some scene or some plot twist from The Last Jedi, and then have a character, in character, scoff at it. <laughs> it, was, it was that blunt. It wasn't subtle at all. Well, um, and that's a, that's a shame. I mean, I know The Last Jedi was great at offending people. All the Freemasons I know, except one, really hated it. They felt like, uh, 
and I think actually had it been released in the 50s or the 60s, it would have been seen as an anti-Masonic film. It's like, what do you mean these secret ancient texts are just a way for us to hang out together and they don't really mean anything? Lots of lots of stuff to upset people there. So um, I'm afraid we, um, we actually have managed to find a whole eight minutes to say bad things about just this one film, which means we'll have to have you back pretty soon to do the uh, Amazon Prime uh, while you're snowed in catalog uh, sometime early in January. Certainly. All right. Thanks so much, Sean. And thanks, everybody, for uh, listening. Thanks to uh, my significant other, Corey Matthews, for uh, coming on my program finally and classing the joint up. And uh, thanks so much to Wayne for uh, doing the boards and wrestling with some challenging phone stuff today. We'll uh, see you all after Festivus. That was a still very timely uh review slash warning about the final Star Wars movie. Um, we're going to be finishing up with our last segment here of uh, Sean's uh, review of uh, some new Amazon titles, and in particular, the conclusion of Man in the High Castle, uh, this broadcast from just two months ago. This is CFUR 88.7. You're listening to Missing Peter Zosky and Prince George. I'm your host, Stuart Parker, and we'll be back next week with our regular current affairs programming. Thanks so much for listening. And grab a ticket. And uh, now we have uh, Sean Frakoviak, uh, our uh, regular entertainment correspondent uh, from a, uh, a sofa outside of Austin, Texas. Before we go to the Amazon catalog and some stuff that I'm interested in your reviews of. Um, A, welcome back. And B, how goes that uh, morass of Social Security bureaucracy you're negotiating? Uh, no news. Um, they, when they uh, give you their, their denial, the, the next step is you... Uh, you have to appeal the de- the denial, and then they set up a hearing. So it was, I think, eighteen month lead time from when I got the announcement that they were going to schedule a hearing at some point in the future. So perhaps by this summer, I will get a notice of when they've decided to give me a hearing. <laughs> so sometime so, next year, probably. Right. Now, some people would say that uh, Social Security in America is broken, that disability claims are broken, that they don't work. I mean, my personal argument is just that the government is trying to murder you. Uh, But um, at least we're taking in some good TV while this is happening. So um, I recently took your advice and began watching uh, Man in the High Castle. And now this has now taken over... Uh, the life of me and uh, my partner, we're going to be done this show pretty soon. Um, this is a really amazing piece of, uh, of, uh, of, of TV. Um, what, uh, I mean, there's lots of stuff that grabs you. What grabbed you about it? What, um, what were the things that uh, make a case for the show because uh, I just I just got to the name of the show and did what you said uh, how would you pitch this show to somebody who wasn't sure whether they'd like it well uh, first stop would be the the novel it's based on uh, it's a Philip K. Dick novel one of his better novels recognizes perhaps his greatest novel this is the guy who came up with the story that Blade Runner is based on a bunch of other Material that sci-fi fans are going to be familiar with is based on Philip K. Dick, A Scanner Darkly, that sort of thing. Um, Philip K. Dick was a great um, speculative science fiction writer. He he would he would come up with an idea, and then would really do a great job of mapping out how that little change or, or that big change would affect society, how it would affect culture, how it would affect the way people related to each other, uh, sort of a human perspective take on science fiction, whereas a lot of science fiction stories will be more 
um, noble scientists are going out and, and dealing with this problem and coming up with snap scientific solutions or shooting lasers at, at, at things that need to be shot at. This, this is more of a, a sociological sort of science fiction. Um, and Man in the High Castle specifically is the story of uh, a world where the Axis won World War II. That, that, that's just the, the cliff notes on it. The bad guys won. Um, the U.S., where most of the action of the story takes place, has been divided into some neutral areas and a, a German occupation zone and a Japanese occupation zone. And what the TV series, I think, does a great job of doing, it's set in the 60s, so this is a good 20 years after the war has ended. Uh, it, does a, it does a good job of presenting a, a plausible picture of how the Nazis being in charge of most of the eastern U.S. would have affected the culture, how people would behave if they were in such a, if they were in such a setting. And, and ditto with the West Coast being under Japanese occupation, how that shifted the culture. Um, and that's to me is the really the most entertaining part of the of the TV series is just looking at all the ways the world shifted little ways not not big ways not like how many German tanks are occupying the Soviet the former Soviet Union but how are, what happened to the music that people listen to what happened to the way people go about their daily business I I, I find the whole series fascinating on that on that. Uh, in that regard. Yeah, that was that was my experience. It's like, and then the science fiction started creeping into season three. I thought, no, I don't want that. I just want to see more of Nazi America in 1962. Uh, that, um, you know, you almost feel like uh, the, the small amount of sci-fi elements distract you from the bigger sort of anthropological, sociological picture. Um, and, uh, you know, I was, I thought... And I, I agree very much. There are these little character sketches, like the female lead's mother, who's a minor, minor character, but lives in occupied San Francisco. It, her speech is just a stream of anti-Japanese racial obscenities until everyone leaves the house, and then it turns out she's addicted to watching sumo wrestling. And I thought that that was a, that was a nice picture of people... Uh, having these complex relationships with uh, relationships of domination. Now, um, the um, Philip K. Dick, it's a little upsetting to think that somebody suffering from paranoid schizophrenia in the early Cold War would be so effective at producing things that speak to our times. But um, from watching this, you do get a feeling that our times are being spoken to a bit. Um, do you think this is something that, do you think that um, it's production and things like this, is this something that we, um, that we should link to the Trump era and the reemergence of, uh, of fascism? Is this something that could have been imagined as well for television if it were made 10 or 20 years ago? Well, 10 or 20 years ago, it wouldn't have the same sting, certainly. Um, there were no obvious fascists in the running for public office uh, 10 or 20 years ago. So this would have been, it would have seemed safer. Like, oh, yeah, the Nazis are bad guys. I, I've heard this story before. Now, it, it obviously speaks to our time. The funny thing about the, about the TV series is that there's way more science fiction in the TV series and the mechanics of how information is being conveyed back and forth and the, the reality twisting, all of that stuff, there was very little of that in the novel. Um, in the novel, um, all the information about the, the, and I don't want to spoil it too badly, but the, the premise is that there's this subversive, idea running around the world of the man in the high castle that there's another possible world where the good guys won. Um, and the, the, the mechanics of how that is represented in the series are very different than the me mechanics of that idea in the book. In the book, the person who comes up with that, that idea happens upon it 
through using Chinese uh, divination. Divination, yes, divination was the word I was looking for. He uses Chinese divination to come up with the idea, right. <laughs> which is is a much less sci-fi concept, and the the book has a much nastier stinger. Um, because the world that he imagines where the good guys won is a hundred times better than our world. He assumes that in a world where the good guys won, everything would be better. Everything would have been resolved more fairly. There would be more freedom. There would be more equity. They would have dealt with these obvious societal problems that we have the power to deal with. That the is real a thing difference. in the novel is that if the good guys won, why isn't the world better? <laughs> right. So, uh, and that that speaks to the different horizon of expectations in 1962 when the book was written. We're going to go to a short break, and when come back, we'll talk a little bit about um, the performances and maybe get to something else, maybe not. We're back with uh, Sean Frakoviak talking about the Amazon Prime production Man in the High Castle that just completed its fourth and final season. Uh, I don't know exactly what services in Canada it uh, broadcasts on, uh, but on the other hand, I don't believe in intellectual property rights, so uh, people should uh, really try and torrent that thing if they possibly can. Uh, in any case, uh, Sean, I, uh, one of the things that I found most disquieting about the show were all the things that were the same, where if the Nazis had won the war, all kinds of elements of how families worked, how material culture was, what drugs the rich and upper middle class were doing, um, that it's a little bit chilling to see how recognizable the 1962 of um, Man in the High Castle is. Indeed. Some of my favorite bits from the the series, uh, the first season, our characters run into a kindly country cop <laughs> yes. who, who acts just like a country cop would, would be in our, rea- would, would in our reality, but the... Uh, the context of it is so horrifying, and, and and how horrifying it is 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 really accentuated by how normal this guy's acting. Um, and in season four, um, you get to see a lot more black characters. Uh, the, the black characters really start to come to the forefront of the action of the series. And there's a there's a strong statement to me that for them, not a lot has changed. <laughs> That's right. certainly their perspective. Yes, the Jim Crow's, uh, there's actually, we just watched a scene from season three where there's a public protest in the streets of San Francisco, and it's mostly people of color in the protest, and you realize that they're reenacting the March on Selma with the dogs and the fire hoses and the billy clubs, that they're reenacting an image that took place in America in 1962, and then it ends with a Buddhist monk self-immolating, just like American occupied Vietnam in 1962. So um, we do have a striking sense of this, but it's not just politics. I was blown away by the quality of Rufus Sewell's performance. I think that this is this has got to be the uh, the peak of his career, playing this patriotic Yankee American SS officer. He is really, for me, the crux of the series. His story is by far the most interesting. Um, uh, other characters are running around trying. A lot of them are running around trying to do good guy things. Rufus Sewell's character is by no stretch of the imagination a good guy, but his story and the the obstacles he deals with are so compelling. Um, And to let people in who who haven't seen the series, he is a high-level official in the American Reich, the the, um, part of America that's run by the greater greater Nazi Reich. He's a high-level official, and he used to be a general in the U.S. Army. So he's this old patriot who switched sides and then still sees himself as a patriot. And oh my goodness. <laughs> and also, 
he's a family man. And it was very interesting watching the way that even though you know that this person is organizing murder and uh, on an enormous scale, the first time uh, my partner cried during the show was over this guy's love for his family. And uh, the way in which the fascist is humanized, I think, really does speak to our historical moment. So, as with Star Wars, uh, we never got to the other stuff in the catalog, um, but uh, we're going to be doing this more regularly so that we eventually get to all the stuff I want to ask you about. But I want to thank you for uh, coming on the program uh, again and uh, taking us uh, through an appreciation of Philip K. Dick. Absolutely. Enjoyed it. All right, now uh, we're just uh, near the uh, near the top of the hour. It's about to be uh, ten a.m. Uh, this is um, a uh, an attempt at doing a more disciplined, more predictable version of After Nine on Tuesdays. Um, happy to get uh, feedback in uh, make in making this a more balanced radio program. Uh, of course, uh, just to uh, recapitulate uh, our news from the beginning of the hour, we're going into Super Tuesday in the United States. And uh, this is going to be a fascinating electoral contest. I don't think um, uh, with the front runners going in, all men in their uh, late 70s, I don't think that... Um, uh, when Barack Obama was elected, we would imagine that uh, the 2020 American election uh, would be um, three different white men over 75 vying to uh, vying to take on Donald Trump, the 74-year-old white guy. So, um, of course, this obscures the fact that these candidates could not be more different. Uh, and it might make us question the degree to which we try to deduce somebody's ideology from the identity category they occupy. There's far more contrast going into Super Tuesday than there has been in any Democratic presidential nomination rates since 1948. And yet, uh, the way many in the media would tell us Joe Biden, the uh, corrupt old senator, Michael Bloomberg, the billionaire, and Bernie Sanders, the socialist, are all the same guy. On that note, uh, it's 10 o'clock. Thanks for listening. This has been another broadcast of Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George on CFUR 88.7, co-sponsored by Los Altos Institute. L-O-S-A-L-T-O-S dot C-A.